Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. Thanks so much for joining us. And if this is your first time, I invite you to hit subscribe in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever else you might be listening to the show. All right, everyone, I am here with Edward Raff. Edward is a chief scientist at Booz Allen Hamilton. Edward, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Really excited to be here. Looking forward to jumping into our conversation. You lead a machine learning research group at BAH. What does a machine learning research group at BAH focus on? Yeah, so it's a, a little different for us compared to many other organizations that have research teams because we are a consulting firm. So our business model is based on renting out people's brains. And you have <laughs> some hard problem you want to solve. So we need to have smart people who can work on these hard problems. So we sort of view research both as a way to sort of let people know like, hey, we actually work on some really cool things that require this level of difficulty and thought and challenge, but also as a way to train staff. Like one of the things that we've been doing a lot of work around is adversarial machine learning, where you have your model that you've developed and you put blood, sweat, and tears into it, and it's your baby, and you want it to work well and go into production. And there may be some nefarious actor out there who wants to subvert your model. So like a lot of my work is in malware analysis, malware detection, where the malware author like actively wants to subvert the model. They don't want to be detected as malware. They want to be able to run uninhibited. So if there is someone who's going to try and sort of mess with your model and try to make it produce errors, how do you prevent that? Or how do you even accurately quantify what's happening? And there's no course that you can sign up for yet on adversarial machine learning in school. That's not part of anyone's curriculum yet. So if we want people of that skill set, we sort of have to grow them organically. And research is one of the ways to do that and to build people up with these really deep technical skills that we need, but are not sort of off the shelf yet. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up adversarial ML because I know that's an area of personal interest for you. And that's one of the things that I wanted to dig into with you as a way to get that conversation going. It's actually been quite a while since I've had someone on the show focused on, you know, this intersection of AI and cybersecurity, which has, you know, continued to be of interest, uh, particularly as we see more and more activity, let's say, in the cybersecurity realm. Can you give us an overview or uh, what's your kind of temperature read, your take on the space and where it is and how it's evolved over the past couple of years? Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. If you go back to like the first like applications of machine learning for malware detection, it goes back to like 1985. Mm-hmm. People have been looking at this intersection for a long time and In many ways, it's still nascent, despite having been a problem and been something that like people were really looking at for a long time, in part because it's so different from normal data. Like, okay, convolutional neural networks and deep learning have come in and eaten everyone's lunch at image classification, at natural language processing, at signal analysis, all these different problems. But all these problems have some underlying similarity of like things near each other are related to each other. The words that I'm Mm -hmm. saying right now, like they have meaning based on their order, 
And the things that I say tomorrow really have no relationship to what I'm saying today. There's this correlation in time. Pixels in an image, if you look at this sort of pixel on my shirt and it's blue, and you look at the pixels around it, they're probably going to be a very similar shade of blue. There's this spatial correlation. That's true for signals as well. Malware, that does exist, but it's so much more complex than that. You've got this sort of arbitrary system designed by humans that is like instruction code and assembly and how that gets converted into like literal zeros and ones and how the compiler is optimizing the layout of the code and which functions get put together and not and inlining and just a huge amount of complexity that is very different from what people are working on. It's a very different scale, Mm -hmm. a single executable. Like if you go download a new browser, that's like, 30 megabytes would be a really small browser download. But if you look at that as one data point, that's a massive data point. Yeah. Like that's huge. Like most people, the data point you're working on is maybe like a kilobyte at like the most. We're talking about 30 plus megabytes is like pretty like normal thing to occur. Meaning if you're looking at your, you've got some data set of software programs and you've trained a malware detector on software programs, your browser would be like a feature, a 30 megabyte feature that you're trying to do inference or classification against. Is that what you mean by that? Yeah. It's like a variable size feature. And like, maybe there's an image in it and maybe there's multiple images embedded inside of it. Maybe there's a Word doc embedded inside of it. There's like every other file format could be embedded inside of this one file format. And it's describing like code, this like thing that could do anything of arbitrary complexity. Like that's what Turing completeness is. Mm-hmm. And we have proofs on like how you can't know what any arbitrary code is going to do without running it. Well, you don't want to run it because it might be malware. <laughs> so there's just sort of this huge explosion of complexity as you dig into all these details. And machine learning in the broader communal sense has not really develop the tools to deal with data that's so weird and so different in all these unique ways. So there's a lot of just sort of unsolved machine learning problems at this intersection. And that also creates lots of avenues for attack at this intersection because the malware author, they don't need to abide by the rules. That's part of the whole point is they're trying to break the rules. If there's a spec that says, oh, you don't set this flag in the executable because it'll behave poorly, Well, if that helps the malware author, they're going to do it. They don't care. (laughs) Yeah. So it's a very rich and interesting area. I think from both like a machine learning math side of like, how do we get the math to work with these new kinds of complexities, these new kinds of relationships, but also just from like the low level, really technical side of like, I could use some undocumented instruction to try and make my malware work. That like, oh yeah, this only runs on new CPUs that have this undocumented instruction because it causes some weird side effect. Mm-hmm. And like, I've seen things on like research that gets done on a like Spectre-based malware where like the malware only works in the like prefetching of the CPU, trying to prefetch code and data so that if you run it on like the wrong type of CPU or like in a virtualized environment, it won't prefetch the same way and the malware won't run. So you sort of hide what's actually happening. And if you just look at the code, the code doesn't make it obvious what's going on because the malicious intent is hidden to the prefetching logic. Wow. So just a huge richness of complexity that makes it interesting and fun. 
And malware is, you know, just one element or part of this broader kind of cybersecurity patchwork or, mm-hmm. you know, set of problems, problem domain. Is it representative, do you think, of the other aspects of cybersecurity kind of suffer from the, the same kinds of problems or are they all kind of unique in their own ways? I'm definitely, I'm a machine learning man first and learned about cyber as like an application area mm-hmm. uh, or malware specifically. Okay. I don't want to speak too authoritatively, but I, I think a lot of these have their own sort of unique snowflake problems, mm-hmm. especially around data collection and building a data set that is, again, sort of like unique to this problem space in general, where if you want to get your data labeled, like for images, a toddler can label images, literally. Like you could set up that app and they'd put it on the iPad and they would, they would do it for hours. No special training required to be like, this is a cat, this is a dog. <laughs> like, okay, here's this arbitrary executable. Tell me if it's malicious or not, or like what kind of malware family it's from. Uh-huh. That's a huge amount of work. Or like, if here's some PCAP data, here's some network traffic data. Like, is anything weird going on on this network? I would just stare at you. I don't know. Maybe. <laughs> what do you think the answer is? Like, it's very technically deep and complex, and each avenue sort of has its own unique problems. One of the ways that you've taken on this malware problem is recent paper focus on adversarial transfer attacks. Can you talk a little bit about that paper and the problem that it's seeking to address? Yeah, so this was a a paper's adversarial transfer attacks with unknown data and class overlap Mm -hmm. that a couple of people on our team have worked on. Uh, Luke Richards was the the lead author on it. Some great work. We also had one of our collaborators from uh, NVIDIA and uh, UMBC. And this paper, we were really looking at a core adversarial machine learning problem, which has been motivated by a, a lot of work recently. But you have some model that you want to defend and will call you the victim because someone's going to try and attack you. So there's some adversary that wants to attack the victim model. And they know that the model's there. They know you're going to do it, but they don't have access to the model specifically. So quote unquote black box attack? It is black box. And it's a specific type of black box attack that we sort of generally call transfer learning. Because what the adversary does is they build their own model that sort of does the same task and they attack their own model. And the assumption is, well, I built a good model. You're doing the same thing. These attacks should probably work on your model. And the research that's been done to date sort of says, yeah, that does work. And we were thinking about this and thinking about it from like, okay, if we were doing this in really real life, does this match reality? And maybe sometimes, but oftentimes not. Because what a lot of this work has done has sort of said, I know you're working on this problem. I know you have a model to detect malware because you're the government and malware is coming out at you or you're a large bank or everyone has malware detectors. (laughs) (laughs) Right. That's just part of the game. Or you can imagine sort of like many different tasks you would expect, like the government should be doing this. Like that would make sense. And if you're an adversary, you just want to like mess with people, you're a bad actor. And so you build your own model, but you're not probably going to have the exact same data 
that the victim does. And you can guess what they're going to do, but you don't know exactly how they've set it up. Like there could be reasonable design choices on like, well, what are my classes exactly? And where is that line? So if you're in that situation where you don't have access to their model, you're probably not going to have a perfect match for their data or how they've designed the class structure. It sounds like a lot of the prior work assumed that the adversary was operating from the same playbook, so to speak. It was using the same data and or the same classes. The exact same data and the exact same class. Exact same data and exact same classes, guys. We're just like unrealistically optimistic. <laughs> like if you can defend against like an omnipotent adversary, good for you. Congrats. But <laughs> I want to know what's going to happen in real life. Uh-huh. So that's for the motivation. And I'm not claiming ours is perfect to real life, but I think it's closer. Mm-hmm. So we started building some tests to sort of vary like from 0% overlap in the data to like 100%. And how much is that data overlap really a factor in the transfer success rate? And also overlapping the number of classes that are in common. So you have like all the exact same classes as each other. So you have like two classes in common. So like a very small attack surface there. We spoke a little earlier about the difficulty of kind of defining the data in this space as a feature, uh, an executable, or is it something else? Mm -hmm. In this particular case, in the example that you used in this paper, what was a piece of data feature and what did the labels look like? In this, we were focusing just on the the adversarial machine learning part. So we picked easy data that everyone has access to. So we just did image data like CIFAR 10, CIFAR 100, mini image net. Okay. And the classes were the normal classes like cat, dog, car, truck. Okay. Deer and frog, I think, are also classes in there. <laughs> so we're just focusing on the, the adversarial part for, for this one. All the complexity of malware is just like, that's too much extra complexity right now. Right. You're basically... You're, hey, let's step back, take a simple model and just test this fundamental assumption about transferability mm-hmm. with different data and classes. Yeah, something that I often, probably one of the best skills that I try to like pass on to like employees and, and students is like, okay, like you have this complex goal, just figure out some way to cut this down mm-hmm. into different chunks because you can't eat the whole sandwich. It's too big. <laughs> Forget about an elephant. (laughs) You can't even eat the sandwich. (laughs) It's too big. You got to cut something off. So we cut off this part. Uh, So we're using just image data as convolutional neural networks that everyone sort of like feels comfortable with. You're going to understand what the results mean. When we set this up, we saw that both less class overlap and less data overlap both would hurt the attacker's success rate, which makes sense. But we also saw some odd behaviors that it wasn't sort of as consistent as you would expect. It wasn't sort of like this smooth degradation down. Like it would get worse and it would like start to get better again, but randomly. It sounds like some kind of generalization property kicking into effect or something. That's part of what I think it is. Because what really became very interesting is from just sort of the base results of of that behavior, we, we think a lot of it is like once you sort of reach a minimum sort of threshold of like lack of similarity there's a lot more randomness that comes into play that the model just is not trained to like expect in any possible way Mm -hmm. and 
now it's making errors, maybe not because the adversary did such a good job crafting the example, but the data is just so different from what the model itself understands because the amount of overlap has decreased so much. And the really sort of scary part is when it comes to like, okay, you want to defend your model. What defenses work? Currently, the overall best defense is adversarial training. Mm -hmm. It's been the best defense basically since it was introduced in like 2017, 2018. And it's pretty simple strategy of like, okay, you have your model, you train it. And now as you're training, attack your own model, then feed the attacked inputs back into the training and just sort of be doing that continuously. So you're constantly training the model to be better at correctly classifying attacked data points. And our results showed if you do this in this more realistic scenario, adversarial training actually weakens the defender. Wait, what? (laughs) Yeah. The attack success rate increased on models that had been adversarially trained. I think what's happening there, what we sort of believe is going on, is when you're doing adversarial training, you're in a way overfitting to a very specific adversary, an adversary that has the exact same classes and data you do. Mm -hmm. But when the adversary has different classes, their attacks are going to naturally go in different directions that your model has just never optimized for. Right. Because it sort of started from an initial condition and it got better at that and it's sort of just converging on whatever initial path worked best. And so it's sort of overlearned to the sort of unrealistic scenario. Because they're tightly coupled. Yeah. Like the data is the same because it's it's baked into the process of creating the model. Exactly. And so the attacks seem to transfer more successfully if the victim has done adversarial training in this sort of imperfect knowledge scenario, which if you're actually trying to build a robust model for real life production, like that's actually a huge concern now because you, you say, okay, I'm going to keep my model private. I'm going to try and sort of mitigate as much information that the adversary could acquire by sort of keeping this close hold. Mm-hmm. And you want to do all the best things. Okay, I'm going to do adversarial training. Like, well, actually, if you believe that's the correct threat model, you might not want to do that. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it might actually make you more susceptible rather than less. Interesting. Can we maybe take a, a second to kind of punch into the degree to which adversarial training and a lot of these techniques around adversarial ML generally, the way the degree to which those are practical concerns and implemented by people that are building actual models mm-hmm. versus academic thought exercises that people really aren't thinking about when they're putting models into production at this point. Like, what's your read on that from where you sit? I think on average, it's more academic for most, most real world, like usage of it is more academic. Like people don't necessarily have a reason to really believe they're under attack. So a lot of people motivate this with like self-driving cars. That, mm-hmm. uh, someone's going to trick the self-driving car into plowing through a stop sign, which like, I don't want that to be a thing that can happen to my future self-driving car. That's true. And I'm sure 
maybe some horrible person out there like tries to screw with them but like in general it's not like a very well motivated threat like who's going around just trying to destroy every self-driving car i think it's more important in like the academic sense of like trying to figure out how to make models robust to just like errors in general than it is there's an actual adversary trying to trick you Mm -hmm. and a lot of times a lot of the research that gets done become sort of somewhat cartoonish and like the amount of information that they give the adversary makes it like, why would they do it this way if they were that powerful? Like I remember seeing some work on adversarial attacks on medical imaging and they'll adjust the medical image and the, to make the AI models would give you the wrong prescriptions and the wrong drugs and the wrong medication to like hurt your health and, if they have like that much control to like get all this data and like access the model, <laughs> they just flip a bit in the database. <laughs> yeah, I mean, why don't they just change the record in your medical record? It seems I'm, like if they're that powerful, there's so much easier things they could have done. Right. So that was sort of the goal with like how we came up with this work to begin with was like, well, in a realistic scenario, what's it actually going to look like? And for malware, it is a really like true to life, realistic problem that people do deal with like day to day, which is part of why I like doing work in this space is Mm. it's not academic. It is like, this is really happening. Meaning the broad existence of motivated adversaries, but the specific application of adversarial attacks in kind of the malware world you know, there are existing malware detectors that are based on machine learning models, and there are people out there that are trying to deploy adversarial attacks against those models. And there are people in that world that are building adversarial robustness into those models. Like that's all real and extent today. Yeah, that is all real to, to varying degrees today. It's more complex in the malware space because mm-hmm. an adversarial attack in the malware space can happen earlier in the process. Because again, like these executables are so complex, you can sort of mess with the executable itself to maybe screw up the way that the antivirus processes the features to begin with. So you can change like the whole floor out from under the model that you're trying to fool. Hmm. Meaning like obfuscation of the malware code within the broader executable or something different? That's one of many, many possible ways. Okay. There's a thing called packing, which is like, let me put my executable inside of another executable. So you have to figure out how to peel this onion to figure out what's going on underneath. Or like if dynamic analysis, which is when you do try to run the malware in order to get features, a lot of malware will just like initial like step of the malware is to just like wait 24 hours because you're probably not going to run this dynamic analysis for 24 hours. You're going to run it for like three minutes tops. So they're just going to try and like outweigh you. Got it. And so like you might have features that like, oh, does it call this API? Does it call the crypto functions? That might be a good sign of ransomware. Does it call the file delete functions? Like, okay, that's a really good sign of ransomware. It has both of those. Oh, if they just wait until the clock runs out, then you never see the features to begin with. Mm -hmm. So there's more complex and interesting ways that the malware adversary can sort of mess with the model. And I can go on like lots of fun tangents on my favorite one that I've seen. I've never seen it actually used by malware, but it's more, it's just fun that like this is possible. 
there is this project that people released called the Modfiscator. Modfiscator? Mov, like M-O-V, like the Intel move instruction. Okay. Because it's an instruction for people who aren't aware. It's like, this is the assembly code that moves oh. data from one location in memory to another location in memory. Okay. So you might say like, please move this data from like memory into this register because I'm going to do some work on it or from register like back to disk to save it or whatever. Mm -hmm. This one instruction has so many side effects that is actually turning complete. So you can compile any program into one that contains only the move instruction. Hmm. Ostensibly, it looks like this program only moves data and never actually does anything with it. But it has so many weird side effects that you can actually, and it works, you can recompile any program to contain only one single instruction. Wow. Because the program itself is just putting bits into memory locations and executing them. Yep. Right. And there's there's enough special like side effect cases on this one instruction that that's the only instruction you technically need to be able to do anything on an x86 computer. <laughs> wow. <laughs> like, you see weird stuff like this with malware so often. It's just like, Anything you can think of, like, I'm sure there's some way someone could get around this. And then it becomes a numbers game. I'm like, how many more machines am I protecting? How many more cases am I covering? And am I sort of making any new, like, gaping holes that I need to address? Because you're not going to get it all. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean you sit around and go like, well, I can't solve it perfectly, so I might as well not do it. Like, No, you build the best solution you can. You sort of get it out there. You try and fix what you can and see... How do they adapt? What happens next? And sort of this continual back and forth of you taking a step and the adversary taking a step. So malware is a place where these kinds of things are happening today. Mm -hmm. And we kind of got to that from talking about the adversarial training, adversarial robustness kind of incorporating into training and that having an adverse effect on robustness. Is there a solution to that? We're working on it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not out of a job yet, though. Thank you. <laughs> it's sort of a double-edged sword. I mean, if like the gut reaction of everyone is like, these adversarial attacks are definitely a bad thing. We don't want them to exist. We've got to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. Which, yes, it is definitely a bad thing, but it's in the context of how things are being used. If someone's using a machine learning model in a bad way, then being able to subvert that model now actually becomes a defense, a good thing. So if someone is using the, the machine learning model to sort of like create like a surveillance state or something, like, okay, that we're not comfortable with that. We don't like that. There was actually, there was a recent paper. I had this idea years ago, but didn't do it. <laughs> I get no credit for just having a nice idea. But this is a really interesting paper that got published or put online at least on using like adversarial attacks to figure out how to put on makeup in such a way that you look normal, but the machine learning model will just be like, yeah, there's no one there. So sort of giving you a way to sort of get some of your privacy back. Yeah. You don't want to be tracked or looked at. So these are things that they're complex from many perspectives. They're not just from a technical perspective, but from like an ethics perspective on like what is and is not an okay use of machine learning. Mm -hmm. How do we want to deploy these things? These are the things that we often have to work about and think about and be conscious of. 
But it also does mean that adversarial attacks and defenses are like whichever way it goes, we ultimately can or cannot defend against these attacks also means we ultimately can or cannot subvert people using machine learning for inappropriate and unethical use cases. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think about a lot. (laughs) It's going back to the topic of the paper and the main idea is that, hey, you know, the research that's happening here isn't really considering a real world scenario. (laughs) Your paper considered a real world scenario and you found that in general, the less overlap, the more difficult an attack is, but in a kind of a weird nonlinear way. In a weird nonlinear way, and from the attacker's perspective, we could restore some more predictable behavior to the attacker. So if we sort of simulated attacking a model with unknown classes or with sort of imperfect classes by sort of like randomly masking them out when we generate the attacks. So we're like, each time we attack it, we're going to randomly pretend some of these classes don't exist Mm -hmm. and don't count. Maybe the model's first gut instinct is to convert the model from predicting truck to car. You say, well, we've masked out car. That's not an option. So you're not getting credit for that. You have to do something else. Mm -hmm. If we do that, we restore a lot of behavior that makes more sense. So it, it sort of removes the variance of class overlap from the attacker success rate. So re- rewind this for me. This is when you're training your target model, you are doing what? So when we're generating the attacks. Oh, generating the attacks. Okay. To sort of transfer to the victim. Mm-hmm. So the adversary has their own, what we call a surrogate model. They built their own model that they think hopefully matches what you've done. And they're basically going to perturb their own surrogate model in order to simulate that they don't know exactly what you're doing. Mm -hmm. And the attacker pays a penalty in terms of attack success rate in order to do that. But what they gain is sort of certainty about their attacks success rate, if that makes sense. Yeah. So in the normal situation... Maybe the average success rate of their attack would have been 40%, but they're not sure that it's actually 40%. They're, well, maybe it's between like 15 and 60, and I can't really tell what exactly it is. But then if you do this modified attack, they're pretty sure that it's somewhere between like 30 and 35. Mm-hmm. So it's lower, but they actually know what they're going to get. So kind of greater bias, less variance. Yep, exactly. And on the the adversarial robustness training, like how would you go about trying to like reformulate that problem in light of kind of the real world thing? Like, you know, I'm thinking of, hey, is there an analogy to dropout that's like class dropout where you kind of forget about classes in the adversarial loop? And like, does that help? Like, are folks working on that specific problem? Not the class dropout thing, the the broader problem. We actually tried the class dropout thing, and unfortunately, oh, did you? <laughs> yeah, we tried that one. Okay, didn't work. Didn't didn't work. <laughs> we were very sad about that. But uh, I don't know what the answer is yet. Something that I want to look at, and part of the problem with these experiments were they were hugely expensive to run. 
because instead of sort of attacking one model for one data set, we have to attack 50 models for one data set because we have to vary the class overlap and the data overlap every single time. Mm-hmm. And then we want to run it multiple times for each combination because you can pick different classes each time that might bias the results. So it turns into this computational explosion of model training and attacking. Mm-hmm. So something that I want to look at, but I think we might need to figure out something more intelligent first is these approaches that try to sort of build provably robust models from the onset, where you can sort of think of it like your model makes a prediction and it's sort of making a prediction about like a single data point, like one point comes in and you get one answer. And what they try to do is they try to build models. This is one approach anyway, there's multiple, but they try to basically classify instead of one data point, like a region. So you sort of have like the data point is the center and there's like a sphere around it. Mm-hmm. And you're saying everything in this sphere gets the same answer. And if you can do that, you're provably robust to attacking that data point for a certain sized radius. Mm-hmm. And then as you train, you try to sort of increase the size of that sphere that you can do. So it, spheres start out sort of infinitely small, mm-hmm. really just the data point, and you try and push them wider and wider as you go. And that means you're becoming more robust. Theoretically, that would work better, but I'm not sure. <laughs> mm-hmm. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice, but in practice, there is. <laughs> it sounds like that has strong implications on the type of model you're using, like, you know, maybe even as far as not a neural network model, or can you incorporate that kind of technique into a neural network formulation? You can for a neural network. It's really expensive. So it's sort of like, (laughs) if I wanted to do that for these experiments, I'm going to increase the compute time by like at least another factor of 10. It only took us like four or five months to run all these experiments. Wow. So I was like, all right, uh, 40, 50 months. uh, Okay. Maybe we'll (laughs) wait that long. I don't know. But yeah, no, I think in terms of real world, like when you're really thinking through, do I need to be concerned about an adversarial attack? Am I an entity that is likely to be attacked? If I'm a government, if I'm a bank, if I'm a large enough corporation, then yeah, you are likely to be targeted and attacked. Then, okay, what are the models that I train that are sort of the most likely to be attacked or that people are going to try and subvert? So like if you're a credit card company, like you have fraud detection models. Fraud model. Yeah, that people are trying to subvert all the time. So okay, I have these models that I then identify. These are the models at risk. Mm-hmm. And now let's really think through like the specifics of the threat model for this particular thing, not the sort of academic abstract, I can apply this to any problem kind of thing. But what do we know about the domain that we can use to build a robust model for this specific problem? That's what I've had the most success doing anyway. That's the way that I generally try to help like our clients approach these kind of problems is to really focus in on that scope and narrow down to like, where do we actually need to do this? Let's not panic and think that everything's under attack all the time because that's not realistic and you're going to give yourself a heart attack. Mm-hmm. And we've done some of that for malware for specific kinds of malware models. And we've done some of that for uh, computer vision before and gotten a lot of success much more quickly with that approach. 
And as you say, like part of that can be like, well, maybe you shouldn't use a neural network. Maybe you should be using a linear model and sort of carefully crafting your, your features to make a linear model work well, or maybe a shallow decision tree or a random force or something would be better because you can sort of understand to what degree can this really be attacked Mm -hmm. and what's that envelope and design around it. So like part of how we did that for some of our malware work was if we go back to like the example of dynamic analysis, where if you're actually going to see the thing run, let's just assume it's not perfect. I don't claim perfection. But if you say, okay, I'm actually going to see the thing run, I'm going to see it delete the read in the files, encrypt them, write them out, delete the original files. I know this is malware. And for it to be ransomware, it has to like actually have those steps. Right. Normal models look for things that both indicate like one or the other. So I look for things that tell me it's ransomware. I look for things that tell me it's not ransomware. That's a design flaw in this scenario. I shouldn't be looking for things that tell me it's not ransomware. Because if it does those sort of finite things that qualify, it's ransomware. And what malware will do is, or what they can do, is just insert lots of random other benign activity and be like, oh, look at all these benign things I do. That outweighs all these malicious things I did. Mm-hmm. And a normal machine learning model will go, yeah, that's right. You did do more benign things than malicious things. <laughs> you are benign. That makes sense. <laughs> But no, that doesn't make sense at all. If you do anything malicious, it's malicious. And by default, everything is benign. It's benign until you do something bad. Yeah. So we can incorporate that into the model, that there are no features that contribute to a score of benign. That That's just sort of the default. And then you have to do enough sort of malicious indicators for the model to change its decision and be like, no, 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 you're actually malicious. Mm-hmm. You don't get to run anymore. And is the... Implication then that the models that tend to be used in the space are kind of very heavily hierarchical or ensemble or something like that, where you're identifying, you've got modules that are identifying specific features or characteristics and then kind of bubbling that up? Some definitely do. I There's a public example that I can definitely talk about. I have to be a little careful on like forbidden knowledge that like we work with a lot of different AV companies through some of our, our work. They don't want people talking about like what they do that they haven't shared publicly. Because mm-hmm. again, like they're worried about an actual adversary seeing it. But, like Microsoft has published some of their like strategy for how they handle uh, Windows Defender and trying to protect computers. And they, they've published, they have this whole hierarchical mm-hmm. strategy of like, okay, here's the super fast model and sort of they can handle a lot of things. And for the things that can't, like bumping that up a stage to something more complex, it's going to do something more sophisticated. And I forget how many stages it had in it, but like the end stage was sort of like, okay, we're actually going to like run this in like a dynamic environment in the cloud to try and figure out what this is doing. Hmm. People definitely do that of this sort of building this hierarchy of speed and complexity trade-offs because you can't afford to run everything through dynamic analysis all the time. Mm-hmm. Like that would just be running all computers, but again, <laughs> there's not enough computers <laughs> be running all the programs that we want to run to make sure that computers can run them. It doesn't make sense. <laughs> right. When you were talking about dynamic analysis, I imagined it to be, well, maybe not dynamic. <laughs> I imagined it to be like this design time tool, like, hey, we collect all these 
samples of things in the wild and like we run them through this dynamic analysis thing and like maybe we're creating labels or something. But it sounds like from this Microsoft example, it's like, no, you try to run this app and it says, hey, hold on, I'm going to put this in the malware detector in the cloud and I'll be back to you shortly. Yep. I remember one of my colleagues who's a, he's a malware analyst, with a lot of experience. He was telling me about how like for the analysts who are just doing their job, like as part of a manual process to figure out what things are, they would have a big sort of a virtual machine cluster to run things and try and observe them and see what, the, what they're doing. And sometimes there is malware that has what's called a VM escape, where there's a bug in the, the VM, and it is possible for the, <laughs> the code to recognize it's being run inside a virtual machine and leave the virtual machine and infect wow. the, the host that it's on. And occasionally that would happen, and they would just be like, all right, burn everything down. Like, yeah. This is <laughs> too complex now. Light everything on fire. We build again from scratch. That's the only way to make sure it's clean. <laughs> right. That might be a slightly hyperbolic description, but it's the complexity is just so great. It's never ending. <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Awesome. What kind of future directions, you know, as if we haven't already talked about enough of them, are you excited about in this space? I'm excited about graph neural networks. Mm. They've been getting more traction in the past two years uh, that I think is good. Some of it's been a little contentious on like relating to a a theme of uh, reproducibility that's also been picking up on like, okay, graph neural networks were very nascent a few years ago. And then there was sort of like a small like kickoff of people iterating and publishing, oh, here's my new fancy this. And then a lot of people are saying like, oh, actually all this is wrong. And really you just didn't tune things correctly. So there's still a lot of sort of working things out there, I think, in part because like the complexity of dealing with graphs, like it's now much more arbitrary connectivity and how much of this depends on the specific kinds of graphs you were looking at versus someone else's graphs. Mm -hmm. But I think a, a graph structure really is going to be the most, at least from like a machine learning modeling perspective, the most ideal way to model a lot of malware. You can sort of create this graph of like which code parts connect to which other code parts. It gives you a way to kind of model because you can have features on the nodes of the graph, but also features on the edges of the graph. If there's a chunk of the executable that you couldn't disassemble, you couldn't figure out what's there, Mm -hmm. you could still have that as part of the model with some features sort of indicating that like this is connected here somehow, but we're not sure what's actually happening at the node like fail to parse correctly. So I think that's something that is probably the right direction to be headed in, but is not yet fast enough and scalable enough for the malware sort of use case where like our data points are like the size of other people's data sets. One of the data sets that I work with regularly, the largest file in the data set is like 200 megabytes, which is like all of CIFR 100 is 200 megabytes. Like literally, this one data point is the size of this data set everyone's using. It's interesting that you provided that context about graphical models, graph neural nets as applied to this space. I'm pretty sure one of my first interviews around cyber was on graph stuff. And I did not realize that there was a bit of a graph neural networks and security winter that happened. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure it's uh, so much as a winter as a 
the graph neural networks for malware just like hasn't germinated yet in the first place. Mm, okay. So the graph neural networks in the machine learning land, people have done graph-based things for malware a lot before, but just like normal graphs, not neural network-based. Ah, got it. Okay. So I can see like the room for worlds to collide, but they haven't collided yet. They haven't yet. yet. <laughs> got it. Very cool. Very cool. Well, Edward, it was wonderful chatting and learning a bit about what you're up to in this space. Thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thank you again uh, for having me. It was a really fun conversation and I really enjoyed it. Absolutely. Thank you. All right, everyone, that's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, If you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.